Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the inaugural episode of the Saving Country Music Roundup Podcast. I am your host, Trigger, from SavingCountryMusic.com. Either this is probably the first time you've ever heard from me or heard of me, or you've been following Saving Country Music for years. Either way, for many years, people have been saying, hey, Saving Country Music needs to do a podcast. In truth, Saving Country Music has done quite a bit of podcasting in the past. Um, early on, there was an entire podcast network that had multiple shows on multiple nights, uh, but this was during the time when it was sort of a Wild West in podcasting, and we played music uh, without having licenses. And because that was not cool to do and is definitely frowned upon now and will get you taken down, uh, we had to sort of wrap up that whole operation. Um, and then there's the Country History X podcast, which can still be found wherever you listen to podcasts. It's called Country History X. Just search it up. And it's a history podcast. Uh, there hasn't been a new episode in a little while, but new episodes of that are going to be coming as well. But one of the reasons that there hasn't been a Saving Country Music podcast previously is because we can't play music. And this, to me, is a very frustrating setup. I run a music website, and if I want to have a music podcast, I want to be able to play music on it. And unfortunately, due to the licensing issues uh, in the United States and around the world, you just can't do that. You have to like literally license each individual song you want to play. And sometimes you just want to play a part of a song. You can't even really do that without getting taken down on podcast networks or YouTube or what have you. Spotify, about a year ago, did launch a new program where you could embed full songs into podcasts. But the problem with that was it is only available on the Spotify network. And I would like, you know, any podcast I want to do, I want to make it available everywhere. And also the the other issue is that you can you only can use the full song. So if I'm talking about a song and maybe want to play part of it or something, you can't really do that. And from a production standpoint, like you have to literally tell it where you want the song to be and then it plays the whole song. So it's just really it doesn't work out perfectly. But nonetheless, I see the great value of reaching people where they are. And so many people these days are listening to podcasts, sometimes in lieu of listening to music or other entertainment. And they do this while they're working or they do it while they're driving. And so to get the Saving Country Music message out, giving audio options uh, seems like a really smart idea. So 
we're going to start this new podcast in the hopes that eventually there will be some some rational sense brought to the idea of allowing music to be on podcast too. And I want the creators to be compensated for that as well. So, you know, if creators contribute to the any podcast, they should be compensated with royalties or shares of revenue or what have you. So the way this is going to work is that through a week, we're going to capture select articles in audio form and post them on YouTube. If you want, go ahead and subscribe to Saving Country Music on YouTube. You can find it if you search it. And that way you get those articles in your inbox. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take that audio and round it up into weekly podcasts with everything all in one place. Now, As part of this, there's also going to be segments that are part of the weekly roundup that you will not find uh, either on YouTube or on SavingCountryMusic.com. Sometimes they may be super short. Some other times they may be long diatribes. We'll just see whatever is on my mind. But this is a way to offer something in this podcast that you're not going to find anywhere else. I do a similar thing with the newsletter that I put out occasionally. I have a, a what's called the Notes from Trigger, and I sort of talk about things that I haven't talked about on the website, things that might be coming up, things that are on my mind. And so uh, this podcast is going to be a great opportunity to do those kinds of things as well in audio form as opposed to written form. Um, so you could sign up for that newsletter as well. You can find the sign up on savingcountrymusic.com. And this is also a good way to stay connected with Saving Country Music because, as we all know, following simply on social media is not always the best way to stay on top of things because of the algorithms. Often a lot of the most important stuff gets buried and a lot of the silly or salacious stuff is what rises to the top. So this is just a good way to keep in touch with everything. Uh, Along with bookmarking savingcountrymusic.com and just coming there, that's really the best way to find all the content. So what's going to happen here is I'm trying out a few different things. I'm trying out the YouTube stuff. I'm going to try out some podcasting stuff and see what sticks. I'm also doing some more stuff on social media than I've done in the past to try to reach people uh, where they are, like I said before. And the thing is, is this is starting as audio, but there's also going to be more video components coming from Saving Country Music as well. Probably starting in 2024, there's going to be some video segments and stuff. You might even see my face. We'll see what happens. And I have to be honest here. This has been a heavy lift uh, production-wise and just time-wise. You might have noticed there's been a few less articles on the website over the last couple of weeks. We've also been doing some stuff on the back end that has cost a lot of time. But the idea here is to sort of fortify what Saving Country Music is doing for the future as the future is meeting us head on with stuff like AI and such. Ultimately, I remain a writer, not a podcaster or a videographer or anything like that. And I'm always going to be a writer and I'm going to approach these things as a writer. And writing is going to be the foundation of everything. But I understand that multimedia is where we're going. And so that's where I'm going as well. Also, just a heads up, this may not be necessarily a weekly podcast. It may be once a week. It may be twice a week. It may be once a month. It may be seven times in a month. It really depends on the importance of what needs to get out and when it needs to get out. There's also likely to be another podcast where we delve into some of the more 
kind of deep topical things of our time, uh, like the Morgan Wallen inward incident or Oliver Anthony's explosion, things like that, that really take a lot of in-depth uh, attention. Sometimes audio or video are going to be the best ways to do that as opposed to just only in written form. But I'm never going to solely go away from the written form either. Some people love to read stuff as opposed to listen to stuff or watch stuff. As a lot of people who've been following Saving Country Music for years know, I spend a lot of time out in the field because I believe that's really an important place to take in country music. I travel around the country and go to festivals. I go to conferences. I talk to fans. I talk to people. Um, so when I'm out in the field, there's going to be limited resources to do as much with audio or video. But luckily, the technology for that has come along as well. And so there will be opportunities for that even when I'm out in the field. But enough yammering. This week, we had a surprise release from Mike and the Moon Pies. So let's get right into that album review. There's a reason people come stumbling out of Mike and the Moon Pie shows like their hair is on fire and they've just witnessed a miracle. Swearing these boys from Austin are the best live band on this planet or any other. And it's not the Kool-Aid they're serving. Ever since the bass player Omar joined the band in 2018, right after they started to transition from a local honky-tonk act to a national touring one, Mike and the Moon Pies have taken it to the next level and have become perennials at the very top of Saving Country Music's best live acts every year. Mike and the Moon Pies studio albums are stellar affairs themselves, and you can't go wrong pulling up any of them and giving them a spin. Their last album, One to Grow On, pulled the rare 10 out of 10 score at Saving Country Music. But there's just no way to quantify what they do live. It's at a whole other level that you have to experience to understand. Not even a live album can do it justice, but Live from the Devil's Backbone will get you closer to that experience than anything else. Often live albums feel like secondary entries into a band's discography because they're little more than the same studio songs you've heard before with slightly different arrangements and crowd noise in the background. That's not the case for Mike and the Moon Pies and Live from the Devil's Backbone. The band's songs are a completely different animal in the live context, and the frenetic energy of the performances comes blazing through. Mike and the Moon Pies are a Texas honky-tonk band in every sense. They just happen to have a global appeal. You could put them in a stadium, and the fundamental appeal would still be how they embody the spirit of Texas country honky-tonk music. So capturing them in a true Texas honky-tonk like the Devil's Backbone is the perfect context. Located on a picturesque limestone ridge in the Texas hill country just south and west of Austin, the Devil's Backbone is built near what used to be a Native American campground. A blacksmith shop was constructed there in the 1890s for wagons, then a liquor store in 1933 after Prohibition, then a Sinclair gas station in the 40s. By the early 50s, a dance hall was added, and regulars love to tell you the location is haunted by a handful of different apparitions. Just a few years ago, you could stop by the Devil's Backbone for a beer, but the dance hall was basically a glorified storage area for the bar and virtually abandoned. Now it has become one of the most hopping honky-tonks in Central Texas, and this Mike and the Moon Pies project only will help revitalize the spot and lend to its legendary history. 
The Moon Pies got the idea for the album while recording at nearby Yellow Dog Studios in Wimberley and going to the Backbone for nightcaps. About the only thing missing from Live from the Devil's Backbone is the visuals of seeing Mike and the Moon Pies on stage. But luckily, the whole Texas music scene TV show crew was on location to capture it all, and a concert video of the event is set to premiere in November. At Omar's hair whips, Mike's magnetic stage presence, and this will be the closest thing to being in the room. At 22 tracks, this double album probably has the songs you were hoping you'd get a live version of to enjoy at home, including the Saving Country Music 2021 single of the year, Hour on the Hour. Their show ender, We're Gone, is just a great song to capture in the live setting, capped off by Mike's walk-off music. Their version of London Homesick Blues gets a little lost in the chords, though, and it would have been cool if they had a live version of the song The Way by the band Fastball that has become one of the Moon Pie's signature songs to play live. If you have an opportunity to see Mike and the Moon Pies live, do it. There are no good excuses why not to. The world has been slow to wake up to what it has within its midst with Mike and the Moon Pies. But word is spreading, and someday, folks will be bragging loudly how they were there when Mike and the Moon Pies played the Devil's Backbone in Texas. Some of those people might even be telling the truth. The rest of us will just have to live it out vicariously through Live from the Devil's Backbone. 8.3 out of 10 When you played banjo on Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You and Jolene, were a member of Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys and Porter Wagoner's Wagon Masters, and racked up more awards and recognition than any mantle could handle, you can definitely say you did your part to keep the flame of country music burning for multiple generations. This was the charmed and accomplished life that banjo maestro Buck Trent enjoyed but perhaps he was best known and most recognized for his many appearances on Hee Haw with close friend and collaborator Roy Clark. Trent's signature catchphrase, "Uh uh-huh, oh yeah, with outstretched thumbs made him a fan favorite and hard to forget. Born in Spartanburg, South Carolina on February 17, 1938, Charles Wilburn Buck Trent showed promise at a very early age as a talented musician. He started playing the Hawaiian guitar at the age of seven. By the age of 11, he was performing on local radio stations such as WSPA and WORD. Along with banjo and steel guitar, Trent was also talented with the dobro, mandolin, as well as regular guitar and bass. But the banjo is what Buck Trent would forge his legacy with, including being credited as the inventor of the electric banjo. Early in his career, Trent traveled to Texas and California to find work as a musician, performing on Town Hall Party in Hometown Jamboree on the West Coast and starting his own band in San Angelo. He moved to Nashville in 1959 to play in the band of Bill Carlisle, who made regular appearances on the Grand Ole Opry, and this is when Buck's career really took off. Bill Monroe saw Buck Trent's talent and took him off of Bill Carlisle's hands. Then Porter Wagoner picked Bill Monroe's pocket and placed him in the Wagon Masters. It was during his time with Wagoner that Trent innovated the electric banjo with steel guitar master Shot Jackson. 
Buck Trent became a mainstay behind Porter Wagoner for many years, and this is how he was able to work himself into the recordings of Dolly Parton, who also started in the Wagoner camp. He left Wagoner right around the same time Dolly did near the beginning of 1974 and started working with fellow banjo man Roy Clark. The two won the CMA's Instrumentalist Group of the Year in 1975 and 1976 and also became part of the first country roadshow to tour the Soviet Union. When Roy Clark became the host of Hee Haw beside another Buck, Buck Trent joined the cast as well, performing on the show for the better part of 20 years. This gave Buck more of a public profile, and he took advantage of it by releasing scores of solo albums, eventually recording 15 in total, while also performing on the albums of many others throughout the era. When the Hee Haw universe dissolved, Buck Trent headed to Branson, Missouri, where he became a mainstay and a foundation for the city's talent. He didn't disappear from the television entirely, though. He was a favorite guest and auxiliary player for the Marty Stewart Show from 2008 to 2015, and also played on Stewart's excellent 2012 album, Nashville, Tear the Wood Pile Down, where he is named as a featured performer on the title track. Though it was Buck Trent's Hillbilly Put-On that made him so endearing to audiences, it was his world-beating musicianship that earned him the respect of his musical peers in country music and well beyond. Though Roy Clark is best known as the hee-haw banjo player, Buck Trent was right beside him bolstering those blazing banjo runs, while his work was featured on some of the most iconic recordings in country music history. Buck Trent died on October 9, 2023 at the age of 85, leaving a legacy behind that can be counted well beyond five strings. Hey, it's Trigger back with you live, or at least semi-live, and uh, it's interesting listening back to this Buck Trent obituary because so often people think that the articles on Saving Country Music that get the most attention are the ones that get the most comments, and that's rarely the case, actually. You really don't know what is going to get the most attention, and the Buck Trent obituary is a perfect example of that because it got more attention than any of the other articles or all of the other articles posted on Saving Country Music in the last week combined. You never really know what's going to resonate with people or what the Google algorithms or the social media algorithms are going to pick up on. Uh, so it's just kind of a roll of the dice. And I always just try to post what I believe is most important and what, what is best to spend my time reporting on. But the article that far and away garnered the most discussion was one that I posted about Jason Isbell and a new feature that was published in the L.A. Times that sort of coincided with the opening of the voting for the Grammy Awards coming up. So I'm not going to read off the whole article here. You can go to Saving Country Music and read it for yourself. But I do want to reinforce and underpin a few things that I said there and also a couple of things that seem to still be misconceptions about <laughs> my opinions of Jason Isbell. Um, so I think Jason Isbell is one of the most important artists and most certainly one of the most important songwriters of our time, irrespective of genre, whether you want to call him country, Americana, rock, or whatever. And I also think that his new album, Weather Veins, is going to go down as one of the greatest albums in music in 2023, again, irrespective of genre. I also expect it to be a big player in the Grammy Awards, 
I don't have a vote in the Grammy Awards, but if I did, I probably would vote for it. And what I do have a vote in is what wins the Saving Country Music Album of the Year and Song of the Year and such that comes up at the end of the year. And my guess is, is Jason Isbell is going to be weighing very heavy in those decisions come that time. That said, this particular feature in the LA Times really bothered me for a few reasons. My primary concern was since Jason Isbell was already such a frontrunner, this just puts him at an even more big advantage over the competition. The Grammy Awards are unique because they're a nonprofit organization. They're not like the CMAs or ACMs that focus on the big commercial artists. They focus a lot often on the independent and overlooked artists, the critically acclaimed as a opposed to the commercially viable. And so when you have someone who's already got such a good advantage going into the Grammy process, who gets this huge spread because the media is already fawning over them, then it's just going to give him even more of an unfair advantage. And, you know, I just think about artists like Gabe Lee or Brennan Lee or Allison Russell or the Warren Treaty, who deserve some sort of award, probably a Grammy award, and may be on the outside looking into that process, especially if somebody like Jason and Isbell can leverage their favorable media coverage into even more favorable media coverage. I mean, this is about the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And so I just felt the need to speak up. And that's not necessarily anything against Jason Isbell. Like I said, he's going to get Grammy Awards regardless of what I say either way. And, you know, for a lot of these artists, just simply a Grammy nomination is a career defining moment. If you can say you're a Grammy-nominated artist, you're going to get better gigs, you're going to get better festival appearances, you're more likely to be signed to a record label or a booking agency or a manager. So these things are really important. And they're especially important for the smaller the artist is when it starts out. Jason Isbell already has four Grammy Awards and four nominations. He's won everything he's ever been nominated for. And my guess is, again, he'll probably win this year. So I just wanted to speak up for the people that, that frankly, the press rarely does speak up for. And I put my money where my mouth is by publishing a list of artists that I hope don't get overlooked in the Grammy process. Even if they don't get nominations, I just want people to know about these projects that should be Grammy considered. The other issue that I took with it is the article was entitled The Radical Empathy of Jason Isbell. And the quote that they used to start off this article was, I like running people off who are closed-minded. I'm not trying to sway them to one side politically. This is what Jason Isbell said, but then later in the article, uh, there was a quote from Jillian Welch who basically said, hey, what's great about Jason Isbell is that he can persuade people to his side of the political aisle through his music and through his stories and songwriting. And so I just wanted to call out that contradiction here because this is something that I've been saying for years. I'm not necessarily against Jason Isbell's message. Many of the things that he says, uh, either politically or just publicly, I happen to agree with what I tend to disagree with is how he says it, because he comes across as very arrogant. He loves to dunk on people on Twitter. And in my opinion, this does a disservice to the messages that he's trying to forward. And that's not to say that I, I'm against those messages. Sometimes I'm, I am. Most of the time, I'm not. It's just the way that he's doing it 
is hurting the cause. It's being counterproductive as opposed to convincing people to his side. And so I just wanted to point out that contradiction, which is something I've pointed out with many artists over many years. And it seems to always be misunderstood as being, uh, you know, you get criticized for being right wing or being closed minded yourself or what have you. I just I believe in the ability for music to influence the world and to soften hardened hearts and to open people's minds and to get people to see different perspectives than their own. That is the beautiful thing about music, about country music. It's one of the reasons that I started SavingCountryMusic.com. And so when I see that not working like it should, I just have an inclination as a critic to call it out. But none of this erodes the underlying respect that I have for Jason Isbell or his music. And if you go and you actually read the things that I have talked about with Jason Isbell over the years, uh, it's indisputable that I think this guy is a generational artist, a generational songwriter that has an incredible ability to change people's lives with his music. And that's why I take the effort to criticize some of the things he does, the way that he approaches these things. I want his ability to be the most effective that it can be. And I'm willing to take the shots. I'm willing to be called names, uh, which definitely happened after I posted that article. Because whenever you do this stuff, it's ripe to be misunderstood. And the reason it's ripe to be misunderstood is because people are so used to a binary media environment where either you're praising an artist to the hilt like they did in the L.A. Times feature on Jason Isbell that started this whole thing, or you're slagging an artist and you're trying to cancel them forevermore. And I try to be a lot more nuanced in my coverage of country music. And when you don't find yourself on one side or the other, you tend to get attacked by both. And you're in a no man's land. That's why the media does this. That's why they go to one side or the other. That's why you're either MSNBC or you're Fox News. But I don't subscribe to that. I'm not going to subscribe to that. I'm going to continue to try to inject the nuance in these kinds of issues. Uh, but uh, enough of that. Thank you for letting me uh, sort of get some of that off my chest. Uh, speaking of good songwriters, um, John Bauman released a new album recently called Border Radio. So let's get into the review of that. Yes, there are still songwriters out there that write the songs they want to write and only then figure out if anyone out there wants to listen to them or how to make money from them if possible. Perhaps even more surprising is when the songwriter actually does find an audience for these songs and does make some money for their efforts. Texas songwriter John Ballman is one of those rare birds. From his song Gulf Moon being recorded by Kenny Chesney, to cutting the rambunctious song Country Music's Dead with Mike and the Moon Pies, to multiple songs as a solo performer being considered for Saving Country Music's Song of the Year, he's inexplicably kept his integrity intact while also finding a way to make a living from it. Perhaps nobody evokes geography in their music from the perspective of a songwriter better than John Bauman. This is one of the reasons he was drafted into the West Texas supergroup The Panhandlers with Josh Abbott, Cleto Cordero, and William Clark Green, and he's not even from West Texas. He's originally from the San Antonio area and cut his teeth in Austin instead of Lubbock. 
Bauman's deep knowledge of South Texas and the intersection of cross-border culture and geography comes into good use on his new album, Border Radio. Whether you're from Laredo or never as much as even stepped foot in Texas aside from a layover at the Dallas airport, John Bauman transports you from your excruciatingly ordinary everyday surroundings to a rich and colorful landscape that feels both distinctly foreign and strangely familiar. From the gold paint job on a snazzy El Camino to the gold of a sunset mixed with the dusty hues of the South Texas air, John Bauman doesn't just dazzle you with words. He enhances the experience with visuals derived from the richness of the language and the love with which it's delivered. Cruising down a South Texas highway straddling the Mexican border is where you're headed when you press play. If we're being honest, some elements of the opening songs Gold El Camino, Revving Engines, River Street, and South Texas Tradition could be mistaken for bro country in an alternate context. The references to vehicles, hunting, and drinking would come across different if sung over an electronic beat, or if they weren't imbued with more regional references like Permian Shale. Boys Town might sound like somewhere inner-city youth go to play board games and basketball to stay out of trouble but it's one of multiple walled-off neighborhoods just over the Mexican border where enlisted men and others would cross for dalliances with prostitutes. It's these kind of regional references that allow a John Bauman song to take you right to the place he wants you to be. One of the great things about John Bauman songs is he doesn't ask too much from his audience, or too little. He asks for just enough. And then every once in a while, he'll spring a really deep song on you to satisfy that appetite for something more meaningful. That is what he does on the song's border radio in Turning Gold. But it's the rambunctious, Saturday Night Comes Once a Week, or the simple love song, My Heart Belongs to You, that speak to Bauman's wide appeal while not compromising on quality. Though this album shepherds you away to South Texas, Bauman doesn't call upon sounds to do it. So often on records from Texas country artists, there's that one song that they break out the horns, squeeze box, and bad Spanglish, making for a fiesta of cliches as opposed to something that feels authentic or worldly. Bauman's words are enough to convey the landscapes, textures, and architecture he looks to call to mind. If anything, border radio might be a little hampered by the music being a little too undistinguished. It sits down in this sort of country-adjacent Americana sound that doesn't really budge, though this is the accompaniment you've come to expect from a songwriter-based album. The great thing about great songs is the songs are often enough, and they find appeal irrespective of genre, or even subject matter specifically. Whether South Texas holds a special place in your heart, or you've never even been to the United States, Border Radio will swell a sentimental, almost sad feeling in your heart, and a longing for the region once the music's over. But that's the great thing about music. You can always listen and return again. 8.1 out of 10. Saturday night, October 14th, 2023, was a special night at the Grand Ole Opry. Instead of presenting the regular Saturday night slate of performances, the Opry presented a tribute to country music legend Keith Whitley. Whitley's widow, Lori Morgan, along with Whitley's son and performer Jesse Keith Whitley, 
and his daughter Morgan Whitley were all there to celebrate the occasion. Garth Brooks was also in attendance and performed in tribute to Whitley, who Garth regularly cites as one of his primary influences. Garth Brooks also gives credit to Keith Whitley for planting the seed that helped sprout his career. Referring to himself in the third person from the Opry stage, Garth Brooks said, quote, I will say this, Garth Brooks would never be anywhere close to getting the life and the joy of singing I got if it wasn't for Keith Whitley. This guy is country music, so it's an honor to be here today, unquote. Along with multiple performances of Keith Whitley's songs, the Grand Ole Opry also bestowed Keith Whitley with an unprecedented honor and one that it has disallowed from other performers in the past, a ceremonial posthumous induction as a Grand Ole Opry member. The Grand Ole Opry presented Whitley's survivors with a membership name plaque that will hang near the names of all the other Grand Ole Opry members. Garth Brooks said while presenting the plaque, quote, as you guys know, the voice of Keith Whitley was silenced on May 9, 1989, just three weeks before he was supposed to become an official member of the Grand Old Opry. So this plaque is the plaque that you get when you become an Opry member. I'm very lucky to have one of these. It's out there. The Opry House has decided in his recognition to put this out there with the other Opry members. Whether he got to be officially inducted or not, the fact of having Keith Whitley's name out there among the rest will elevate the Grand Ole Opry and guys like me who have my name out there. The Keith Whitley plaque reads in part, quote, This plaque, a replica of those which recognize official Opry members in the Opry House member gallery, is presented in recognition that while Keith Whitley's life may have ended before his dream of Opry membership was realized, his incredible influence endures on the Opry and country music worldwide. Grand Old Opry, October 14, 2023. Mark Wills opened the Keith Whitley tribute by singing I'm Gonna Hurt Her on the radio, and Garth Brooks finished the night out. But the tribute didn't come without a little bit of controversy. As opposed to finishing off the tribute with Keith Whitley songs, Garth finished the presentation singing his own material. This ruffled the feathers of some Whitley fans both attending in person and listening in via WSM on the radio. That's not the only controversy the night will stir. Though few will take issue with Keith Whitley's posthumous ceremonial induction as a Grand Old Opry member, this is the very same symbolic gesture that the family of Hank Williams and the long-standing reinstate Hank movement has been asking the Opry to do for going on 20 years. Over this time, multiple Opry representatives have stated matter-of-factly that you cannot posthumously grace someone with an Opry induction, and that it would never happen. Now, it has. The Reinstate Hank online petition now has over 62,000 signatures on it, with even more signatures in the physical Reinstate Hank book that Hank's grandson, Hank Williams III, would take around with him on tour. Hank's grandchildren and performers Holly Williams and Hillary Williams have also signed it. Hank Williams Jr. has been spotted wearing Reinstate Hank t-shirts and has also voiced support for the movement. Chris Christofferson, Charlie Leuven, and other top country entertainers have signed it. If reinstate Hank means nothing to anybody else, it means something to the Hank Williams family. On September 17, 2023, country music fans from around the world marked the centennial of the birth of Hank Williams. 
the Country Music Hall of Fame held a special event marking the occasion, as did the Hank Williams Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, with a ceremony and presentation at Hank's grave. Other events were held in venues all around the world. The Hank Williams Centennial seemed like the perfect opportunity to ceremoniously reinstate Hank back into the Grand Old Opry. The Opry did mention Hank on the Saturday night presentation the night before September 17th, with Charlie McCoy performing a Hank Williams song and grandson Sam Williams performing his new version of the Hank song, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. Hank Williams was kicked out of the Grand Old Opry for drunkenness and missing rehearsals in 1952. The Opry promised if Hank could clean up his act, it would welcome him back with open arms. But of course, Hank Williams never got that opportunity. He passed away in the back of his Cadillac on New Year's Day, 1953. The situation is eerily similar to Keith Whitley, who was scheduled to become a Grand Ole Opry member just three weeks after he died of alcohol poisoning. None of this should solely the honor that Keith Whitley has received. It underscores how often a pint of honey goes farther than a pound of flesh. With Lori Morgan, Jesse Keith Whitley, and others working towards this honor with respect and reverence towards the Grand Old Opry, while Hank Williams III took a more aggressive route. As some have pointed out, Hank Williams already does have a name placard at the Opry as a previous member. Either way, the ceremonial induction of Keith Whitley as a posthumous Grand Old Opry member creates a stark dilemma for the institution and the continued questions about how it handled the legacy of a man that arguably did more for the Grand Old Opry than any other performer. The hillbilly Shakespeare, Hank Williams. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the inaugural episode of the Saving Country Music Roundup. I've been your host, Tricker, of SavingCountryMusic.com. Like I said before, maybe we'll do this on a weekly basis, or maybe it'll be every other week, or once a month, or twice a week. We'll just have to see what works for everybody. Uh, I really encourage any feedback you want to leave. Go to the contact page on Saving Country Music or leave a comment somewhere. I'll be looking out for them, trying to find out what people want and where they want it. And keep trying to make it easier for people to listen to SavingCountryMusic.com, not just read it. Take care.